This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Nuri Turkel, the Uyghur American lawyer, foreign policy expert, and human rights advocate, discusses his new book, No Escape. In recent years, China has been accused of committing crimes against humanity and possibly genocide against the Uyghur ethnic group in the northwestern region of Xinjiang. Nuri Turkel was born in a re-education camp in Kashgar, Xinjiang in 1970. In 1995, he had the opportunity to leave China as a student, but was never to return to his home and family. Nuri has since dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of Uyghurs. He is chair of the US Commission of International Religious Freedom and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, specialising in national security and foreign policy. His new book is No Escape, the true story of China's genocide of the Uyghurs. Our host for this discussion is Yasmin Sirhan, staff writer at The Atlantic, where she focuses on populism and nationalism. Let's hear more from Yasmin. Nuri, welcome to Intelligence Squared. So to start, Nuri, listeners may be unfamiliar with the Uyghur homeland. Can you start by giving us a brief history of Xinjiang, or as many Uyghurs call it, East Turkestan? Yasmin, thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with me. The Uyghur homeland, historically, traditionally, preferably known as East Turkestan, been occupied by communist China since 1949. The Uyghurs are Turkic people who speak one of the Turkic dialects, very close to the one spoken in Uzbekistan. The Uyghurs could communicate with the people of Eurasia without an interpreter. For the most part, uh, the closest dialect is Uzbek and then Turkish and Azeri, so the Uyghur people are essentially a Eurasian people who have moved to today's Uyghur homeland, East Turkestan, uh, from the Mongolian steppes a long time ago. The Uyghur people have established empires, 
kingdoms. And most recently, they had uh, two republics. The, the first one was established in 1933. The second one was in 1944, both uh, named East Turkestan. That's why this name is so significant to the Uyghur people. And this is why this name, East Turkestan, is irritant to the Chinese leadership. They like to use the colonial name Xinjiang instead, which means new territory, new dominion, new frontier. The Uyghur people, uh, based on Chinese uh, government estimate, has a population at around 11, 12 million. But as you noted, uh, the Uyghur population has been in a steep decline because of Chinese government's uh, official policy to prevent natural population growth. Last four or five years, uh, in particular, the international community have learned that the Chinese government is committing genocide and crimes against humanity on the world's watch. The Uyghur people not only been subject to genocidal campaign today and crimes against humanity as recognized by U.S. government and several other parliaments and governments in the Western liberal democracies, Uyghur people have been subject to various forms of oppression, human rights abuses, uh, religious persecution. The Uyghur's homeland, why it's so significant to the Chinese, when you look at the map, geographical location, international borders, can you explain some of the conflicts, both internal and external? The Uyghur's homeland makes one-sixth of China proper, which is the size of Western Europe, four times the size of California, approximately the size of Alaska. It sits in rich natural resources. Yesterday was a very significant day in the Uyghur history as well as American history that the U.S. Congress enacted Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act went into effect uh, that would address some of the modern-day slavery issues. I mention this because this China has a strong economic interest in the region, political economy, now using forced labor, enslaving Uyghurs to feed the global supply chain with the tainted uh, consumer products. So China has economic interest, has a geopolitical interest, political interest for domestic audience. Also, it has a strong global ambition that the leadership in Beijing believes can only be realized through full control, a subjugation of the Uyghur people, not only the lives, the land, and the future. Thank you for that for that introduction. Uh, so it's, it sounds like from what you're saying, geographically, but also in, in terms of resources and, and history, East Turkestan, Xinjiang, as, as the Chinese government calls it, is extremely important. And we're going to get into that more. But I, I want to first go back into a bit of your own history, because of course, your book, No Escape, is, is a memoir, one that you said you didn't expect to write, I guess, this early. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? You wrote about how you were born in 1970 in a communist re-education camp during China's Cultural Revolution. What was your life like growing up in Xinjiang, East Turkestan, during that period? I was uh, born in re-education camp, which is much like the ones that we're fighting to shut down today. My mother was pregnant with me when she was detained because of her connection to her father, who was uh, labeled as, as a nationalist by the Red Guards and, and the Chinese the state. My parents, who were really uh, newly vetted, been forcibly separated. My mom was taken to the re-education camp, and, and my father was sent to uh, forced labor camps. Ironically, 50-some years later, I'm fighting against the same system that I was introduced, even before I was born. So this is why it's so significant, and this is so important for the international community, audience, policymakers, to know that this is not a one-off. This has been an ongoing repression. 
uh, that I can remember as long as I've been breathing. So that's the, the horrific circumstances that I was brought into this world. And it has been extremely costly and painful experience being an advocate for the Uyghur people and those who have not been heard enough, specifically now I'm using my official position. The message that I wanted to convey to the world through the stories of my own and that of the other Uyghur victims, direct and indirect, is that this is not a regime that the international community can continue to do business with. Uh, this is not something that the international community can escape by willfully ignoring. And no escape means I cannot and I have not been able to escape the China's repression. And at the same time, I'm also giving this book a title to challenge the international community that they can try, but they won't, won't be able to escape this reality. That notion of escape is really interesting because you did manage to physically escape from China. You decided to go to the University of Idaho. Can, can you talk a bit about what led you to choose the United States, which you described as the only safe place to go? Yasmin, that's a great question. Um, people often ask me, you said you have not been escaped, but how did you leave? That's almost like a disconnect between the reality that I was living in and my desire to be free in the future. So the turning point really was the June 4th Tiananmen Square massacre that the Chinese crushed a legitimate demand expressed by uh, students, thousands of students who were risking their lives. That was inspirational to me. After the crackdown, I thought, oh my God, this government is brutal. If they can do this to their own people, for peacefully demanding democratic freedom in the heart of Beijing, risking their lives, risking their safety, then there's no hope in this country. And then to uh, America, after the end of the Cold War, I thought that knowing and learning a little bit about the U.S. support of dissidents, and this country has as an opportunity to advocate for the Uyghur people and others perhaps who are in a similar position. And then finally, you know, as, as somebody who was even born, raised in a communist China, I never considered myself as a Chinese citizen. I thought that was something forcibly given to me. I always uh, borrowed the lines from late Congressman Tom Lentos to describe myself as an American by choice. I wanted to be free and I wanted to be able to explore opportunities. I wanted to work my dream. So both personal and political reasons, I chose to go to America. It was not an easy process. As I described in the book, it took me essentially a year to get my visa approved. And I left Beijing when my mother was in a hospital bed after being injured in a car crash. So, and, and I, I need to note this, I, I lost my father about uh, nine weeks ago. Uh, while I was in an official trip to Uzbekistan. I was um, literally in an area which is in a similar distance between Washington, D.C. and New York, comparing the distance between Tashkent and Nurebji, but I could not be there. I realized the last time that I saw my father in China, which was the August 1995, he took me to the airport to send me off to America. I'm very sorry to hear about, about your father. I wanted to, to ask, and, and you touched on this earlier, that this notion of not really being able to escape China, even after leaving the, the country physically. You talked about this a bit in, in the book about when you were protesting and you could see you know, cameras taking photos of the protesters there. I, and I know just from, from my own reporting and, and from other reports that have been put out there about Uyghurs in the diaspora 
who have never really felt like they could fully escape the Chinese authorities through intimidation and other means. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your experience was like vis-a-vis the Chinese government after you left and what interaction, if any, you experienced during that time. I did not have a direct uh, interaction with the, the Chinese here at home. But uh, there were a number of phone calls, threatening phone calls, harassing phone calls. One of them was quite remarkable in a way that the, the Chinese tried to pressure even stopping my brother's marriage to somebody he was in love with. And the Chinese essentially had a problem with my future sister-in-law's mother, who was perceived as a state enemy to the Chinese government. So they made a harassing and threatening phone call while I was at my law office um, And as they promised, they delivered a big retaliation, yanking away or confiscating my parents' passport, resulting my parents to miss my brother's wedding here in Washington, D.C. and my own wedding in Turkey the same year. When I was born in the camp and then were able to leave the camp with my mother, my mom had one wish. I think the most people in free societies can appreciate that she was praying to God to live long enough to be able to attend my wedding. Not only that happened, but I have a two U.S.-born daughter and son who have not met their grandparents. Several weeks before my my father's passing, uh, my son asked me, looking at the picture from my law school graduation, if I will ever introduce him to his grandparents. And I had no answer to that question. It has been a brutally, excruciatingly difficult process for me. You know, in the past 27 plus years, I was only able to spend 11 months with my parents. The last time that I, I saw my mother was summer 2004 when she came here with my dad for my law school graduation. It's been 18 years. I haven't seen her. And I don't know if I will see her again. So this is a typical uh, casebook example of uh, transnational repression that I have been subjected to. We feel the China has never publicly said this, they're retaliating against my work, uh, initially as a human rights activist, uh, a lawyer, and now U.S. government official. But they did sanction me last December in retaliation against my public human rights work, advocacy work, and at policy responses uh, in Congress and U.S. executive branch to stop the ongoing genocide. So this is another example of why I feel that I have never been escaped an American citizen and now US official and still have my mother, despite our efforts to bring her to the United States to reunite with her children and meet her grandchildren, we have not been able to do it. So this is clearly a retaliation. And also I hate to say this, but it bothers me so much that I have to look over my shoulder when I do something publicly calling the Chinese crimes uh, or calling for strong action in here at home and around the world to stop this ongoing genocide. And then a natural thing comes like, what would be the cost? Somebody just posted a video uh, of uh, my exchange with Senator Marco Rubio in a congressional hearing on forced labor issue in October 2019. The question was, how am I doing? I told him, it is just too risky even to come to testify uh, before the committee, Congressional Committee on Modern Day Slavery. It could cost the lives of my parents, but it is empowering and, and fulfilling work to be voiced for millions of voiceless. That is how I keep myself carrying on this burden and this responsibility. It's tough. It's easy to say it, but when you have your mother, your family, under the nose of the Chinese uh, regime, 
Uh, and at the same time, you have this moral obligation, professional obligation, and personal obligation to be a voice, to, to push for policy responses, to stop uh, this madness. At the end of the day, you know, we all leave this world, but what gratifies me, what makes me feel self-assured is the fact that we have been impactful in our efforts to make a difference. But distressfully, uh, we have not been able to stop the genocide, even though that genocide is in six years. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event and in the two podcasts that will follow it, We'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the value revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the industrial revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. I wanted to ask you, speaking of that, I remember when the news reports kind of started to slowly trickle out about the camps um, and, and so the situation in East Turkestan. And I wanted to ask, a lot of your work predates that by many, many years. When did it first occur to you that something new or sinister was unfolding in China to the Uyghurs? What were the first signs of a crackdown coming? As you noted that I have been fortunate to be part of this work for more than 20 years now. But frankly, I never thought it will get this bad. I knew that this has always been horrible very brutal uh, regime that afraid of its own citizens, afraid of uh, free speech, uh, free thought, creativity, a way of life that is different. But in the late 2016, early 2017, I felt after hearing the Uyghur individuals uh, sharing uh, news about their disappeared family members, intensified pressure on my own parents, like forcing them to give a DNA samples, forcing them to go to the uh, local police uh, station to give a written statement every two weeks. And then I start hearing about the Uyghur thought leaders, academics, that includes the president of the Xinjiang University, who has PhD from Japan, Dr. Tashbulat Tee, disappeared on a broad daylight. 
And the crime was two-faced individual, meaning you're one type in public, one type in private. In private is the true yourself and the public is the fake. So essentially you're not fully in line with party lines, party policies. So you're objectionable. So the large number of Uyghur intellectuals, thought leaders, uh, religious figures, uh, business leaders, uh, stage performers, all start being disappeared. And then in 2017, this is a turning point, right after Donald Trump becomes the United States president, causing up to Xi Jinping and the enactment of something called de-extremification enacted by local legislative entity in Urumqi, the Uyghur capital, that essentially criminalized 48 behaviors, Yasmin. Think about this, like, you know, encouraging your children to marry somebody from your own religious and ethnic group, uh, abstention from alcohol, tobacco, sex, keeping prayer mat at your house, keeping the religious books, past history of uh, going to Hajj in uh, Mecca, traveling 26 countries that includes Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the United States, Germany, all the stands in Central Asia. And then you pass writings. If you publish books in a government-approved publishing house, or if you performed in a uh, government-owned theaters or sing songs that advocates Uyghur pride, that includes some government officials, approved uh, some textbooks for schools. Doesn't this remind you or brings the old memory back from the Nazi era that the Jewish thought leaders and business leaders and religious leaders, women and children in particular, were the primate target in from the Jewish and Roma community. Doesn't this remind you how Stalin's uh, Soviet Union treated uh, Crimean Tatars, for example, during a migration, internal migra- forced migration, population reshuffling, locking up people who are opposing to the communist regime? So this is like a history repeating itself. So that was the time that I thought, okay, this is going really bad. So I start knocking on doors in the House of U.S. Congress at the State Department with very little support. Initially, this was a very, very complicated, disappointing process. That changed a little bit after the U.N. Third Committee Chair, uh, Gail McDougall, challenged the world saying that China created a no-rights zone, locking up one million. And then I started speaking in media, and I started gaining traction and seeing people start paying attention. So uh, it's been an extremely difficult process. But as I noted, that it's been impactful. You touched on so many interesting points there. This conversation, Yasmin, can be easily three, four hours. (laughs) I was going to say, I feel like we could be going. But I did want to pick up on a specific thing. You know, you compared sort of back to history where we've seen these trends before. I mean, in effect, what you described is the criminalization of being Uyghur by the sounds of it, you know, criminalizing faith, language, culture. And I wanted to ask specifically about considering the fact that this is clearly an attack on on Uyghur identity and, and Uyghur culture, how do you see Uyghurs safeguarding those things, protecting them from being wiped out, particularly in the diaspora, given the fact that it's obviously under such attack in, in the Uyghur homeland? Yasmin, I think that uh, the Uyghur people are not uh, well. You know, the way that the Uyghur people greet each other is essentially saying, Yakshim says it means, how are you? I am reluctant to ask that question because we're not well. Even in my case, how well can I be 
that I cannot be next to my mother holding her when she and I are grieving the loss of her husband and my father. How normal that can be if I wake up in the morning and start reading news about a, a particular family being broken and children taken and, and looking at those pictures recently released on BBC through the Xinjiang police file. So that's the just, I'm just speaking for myself, but I cannot imagine those who don't have the type of access that I have, who don't have the type of contacts that I have, who don't have the type of platform that I have to, to share the grievances. So the most difficult, challenging aspect of the Uyghur life today is to cope with the disappointment. We've been told, never again, we've been told that the international community, specifically the UN, that's set up under the UN Declaration of Human Rights, to defend the rights of the people who have been subject to the circumstances as the Uyghurs have been. But there's no response from the UN. There's no single powerful statement. There's no emergency session set up, started, or hold to discuss this issue. It's been six years. And then in the international community, I'm pleased to be in a country that my government speak on these issues in a bipartisan spirit. But where are the European countries that experience fascism, Hitler's Germany, uh, and now communism. Uh, we have a handful of smaller Eastern Central European countries speaking out, but where's Germany, where's France? There's, where's the large, the big guys, the big countries? So, so this disappointment, in light of the fact that there's a sizable European Uyghur population, it's so difficult. So the, the way that I've been advocating with the help of uh, various Uyghur organizations to to use the examples of some successful struggles, specifically the case of the Jews. They sacrificed six million of their own citizens to have a powerful presence around the world. They only not survive, but they're thriving community. So they, these kind of examples, it's not a perfect example, but it's a useful example to keep the Uyghur people in the one place. And the other thing that I think the community is doing great is to organize public events to show solidarity to those Uyghurs. Recently, the Washington area Uyghur community showed up at the National Mall uh, holding the pictures of those part of the China police file, young children and grandmother, showing that beautiful display of solidarity and support by a nation's capital. That really resonated in a lot of people. I mean, just looking at that image, I, I got chalked up. And then the other thing, remarkable thing that the Uyghur community is showing is resilience is to organize cultural events, public prayers to hold the community together. The worldwide Uyghur community, I've heard that uh, uh, recently that they are organizing events in the, in the occasion of coming religious holiday, uh, the 8th, to display the cultural appreciation. And also every year during the, uh, the Nowruz, the entire Uyghur diaspora around the world organized Nowruz uh, celebration, which is a, the marking of the new year for Eurasian people. So there are a lot of things are happening. And I'm, I'm seeing uh, thriving poetry, art, and also a booming restaurant business as well to preserve the Uyghur cuisine. And, and, and you know, the poetry, there's a lot of uh, Uyghur writers and poets are currently serving in jail time or disappeared into those camps. So I'm proud of the Uyghur community for its resilience, for its ability to uh, keep it together. But at the same time, I'm worried that the well-being, and specifically in the mental health aspect of the Uyghur community, let's be honest with each other. And how long can you hold up uh, when you know that 
your children were forcibly removed from your wife or your husband and taken to the state-run orphanages, and you end up recognizing your missing children and a propaganda material, as has been the case of this individual that I profiled in the book, who was uh, giving interview to uh, This American Life, who recognized his son in a, a TikTok video, a uh, promotional video put it out, uh, put out by the Chinese. And, and, and how can you be a normal human being and go about with your life knowing that your family members who were left behind may be subject to this homestay program and your female relative have been subject to sexual harassment, violence, sexual violence at her place of residence, in her own bedroom, in her own dining room. So these kind of things really, really take huge toll on you. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've communicated, and I I'm still continue to comfort those people who are in a much more worse situation than I am. You touched on so many points that that you've touched in the book, and that I would I would love to get into. But I, I guess given the the constraints for time, I, I would just encourage listeners to to go and read about about everything that you've just talked about. I mean, you referenced the becoming the quote unquote becoming family program, where Han Chinese men are are put into Uyghur family homes and and often living with them, and in effect spying on them. You of course, reference so many other things. I I want to as our last question. I know that you dedicated your book to to your parents and your brother, who, as you mentioned, your mother and your brother are still in. China, who you haven't seen in quite some time. Are you able to contact them today? What hope do you have of being able to reach them and even seeing them one day? In a situation like the one that I have been living through, as my fellow Uyghur friends around the world, we have to be refused to be dehumanized. That is, is on a personal level, very strong weapon. And also, we have to be continue to be feel hopeful. That hope that the normal aspect of human life is something that the perpetrators, in the case of Uyghur genocide, is intended to destroy. So no one can take, a, take away the hope from But I'm optimistic that even with the hope that we've been living, myself and my fellow Uyghurs around the world, I think the international community start to come around, you know, with the COVID, with now that the supply chain crisis, and now the Chinese uh, supporting Putin's invasion very subtly, and the Chinese attempt to change international rules-based system, and also exporting their own version of governance, repressive governance style, and digital authoritarianism. It's an attempt to normalize modern-day slavery. I'm not going to suggest that I want this regime to continue, should continue to make the mistakes, but I think their mistakes, whether being made wittingly, unwittingly, is waking up the international community. I think at the end of the day, this matter will be recognized as I'm ultimately trying to accomplish through writing this book to have ownership of this problem, not only by the Uyghurs, but, but the international community. If our values is challenged by this regime with committing genocide in the broad light, if this regime continued to pollute the global supply chain with the tainted consumer products, and if this regime continues to use a prisoner hair, a female prisoner's hairs to uh, supply beauty products, and this is the regime purposefully re uh, breaking up families, and this is the regime testing, developing, and now exporting the most intrusive version of the technology surveillance, then I think this will affect everybody's life. It has affected everybody's life. Yesterday's landmark uh, enactment enforcement of the Uyghur Forced Labor Act, 
it gives me a lot of hope. This gives me a lot of hope that the business community know and must know that this is a very risky business. Continue to enslave Uyghurs or facilitating the enslavement of the Uyghurs or create a legal risk, reputational risk, and investment risk. At the end of the day, the governments can only do so much. So it's incumbent about us, the consumers, the people who has a voice, who can air their frustration. And those who are in power in the halls of U.S. Congress and in the executive branch, and those who sit in the corporate boardrooms to make a major business decision, to ask themselves one simple question, what kind of future do we want? Is this American to look the other way uh, when we saw this kind of atrocities? What kind of society that we have become? Do we only speak out when it's politically inconvenient, when it's not costly in the case of Coca-Cola, criticizing Georgia and the election laws, whereas sponsoring the Genocide Olympics this past February and lobbying against the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And the business leaders like Shamas in Silicon Valley saying that who cares the Uyghurs? Is this the kind of society, is this American even to begin with? What makes us different? It makes us different when we see this kind of wrong act to speak up and stop it. So otherwise, we'll just complicit. I remind the listeners something very important, that this regime that we tried to have a normal relationship with in Beijing developed a brain-controlled weaponry by its military, Chinese military and medical academy and affiliates that the Biden administration added to the entity list last December. What does it tell you? This regime is already engaging in human re-engineering. The genocide does not have to be publicly recognized by perpetrators. Hitler did not invite cameramen and camera crew to let them record how he gassed millions of Jews. It doesn't work like that. He brought in International Red Cross to let them see the Potemkin villages. And it's exactly the same thing is happening in China today. You know, we can criticize this bad actor, that bad actor all day, but we have to ask ourselves, what have I done to stop it? What have I done to stop it at the governmental level, societal level, individual level? That's a great point to end on. Thank you, Nuri. That was Nuri Turkel, author of No Escape, The True Story of China's Genocide of the Uyghurs, which is available now from HarperCollins. I've been Yasmin Sirhan. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access too. Currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.